Well, good morning, everybody. Man, let's try this again. Good morning, everyone. Ah, there we go. It is wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of the pastors. If you're joining us for the first time, we are especially glad that you joined us. We hope that you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted here at the Vista. Uh, before we jump in, you might notice I lost my voice this week. Terrible thing for a preacher to lose his voice. Probably could have interpreted it as a sign that, I don't know, I should not talk this week. Instead, I chose to interpret it as a sign that you all needed to listen very closely. So we'll see how it goes. If I lose my voice, though, uh, Mark, you'll come up here and finish for me? Yeah, okay. He'll, he'll finish for me. This morning, we're continuing our journey through the season of Advent. Advent is this season in which Christians all over the world prepare our hearts to celebrate the original coming of Christ into the world at Bethlehem, which is also a preparation for the future coming of Christ in glory, to judge the living and the dead and then reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. Uh, and this is very important to do this preparation because if we don't properly prepare, then it's like Christmas just isn't as good as it was supposed to be. You know what I mean? It's like you just, you get to Christmas and you throw some prepackaged meal into the microwave instead of doing that slow patient work required to make a good, nice, homemade feast. And I don't know about you, but when Christmas rolls around, my soul is ready for a feast. I don't want that microwave meal, baby. I want a feast. Our guides for Advent, as always, are Israel's prophets, because it was the job of Israel's prophets to prepare the people of Israel for what God was about to do. And uh, our prophet guide this season has been uh, a little-known prophet named Habakkuk. He wrote a very short book, three chapters long. We've gone through the first two chapters, the first two weeks. I'll give you a little bit of background here before we jump in. So in the background of Habakkuk's book, there is the impending invasion of the mighty Babylonian Empire at the control of the very vicious young king, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, God has proclaimed that he is raising up the Babylonians, that God is using the Chaldeans to judge and punish Israel and the rest of the world for their sinfulness. God has proclaimed that this is a very great and awesome plan. And Habakkuk, bless his heart, okay, he has the, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? The guts. He has the guts to kind of raise his hand and say, God, all due respect here. You know, it's just a little bit of Habakkuk talking, but this seems like literally the worst plan anyone has ever come up with. You're going to use the Babylonian, the most unjust empire in the world. You're going to use them to enforce your justice on all the nations of the world. That's the big plan. What are you going to do next? Have Putin lead the UN? That's a very bad plan. I like to picture all the, the prophets in a room as God kind of explains the plan. Jeremiah and Isaiah, they're like, oh, yeah, good plan, Lord. And then Habakkuk's in the back. Got a few questions, Lord. I don't know about this plan. All right, all that to say, Habakkuk was not a fan of God's plan. And so he was obligated to tell God the truth about it because the only thing worse that not trusting God is pretending like you trust God. Okay? The only thing worse than not trusting God is pretending like you trust God. So then in chapter 2, God answers Habakkuk's challenge, albeit somewhat indirectly. And there are a couple things that we should notice. And first off, you might note that while Habakkuk is expecting to be pretty severely reprimanded by the big guy, you know, uh, what he gets instead is less of a reprimand and more of an invitation. God doesn't say, how dare you question me, boy, lightning bolt, that. No, instead, God, he, he acknowledges the legitimacy of Habakkuk's concerns and even goes so far as to give Habakkuk a little further explanation. And the further explanation that God gives Habakkuk in chapter 2, Dave talked about this last week, did an awesome job, is him reassuring Habakkuk that sin never goes unpunished because the punishment for sin is sin. 
Okay, sin never goes unpunished because the punishment for sin is sin. We don't have long to tarry here, but for just a moment, let, let's, let's talk about this. You've heard before, you never get away with sin. That's very true. But that is not as because, you know, God is in constant surveillance mode, you know, with the lightning bolts locked and ready for any infraction. No, you know, like when you lie, okay, God doesn't have to impose some punishment upon you because the punishment for you telling lies is that you're a liar, and it sucks to be a liar. Any of you ever been a liar? I've been a liar. If you're, if you're obsessively vain, you know, maybe a few of us have dealt with that, then God doesn't have to smite you with something, put a big red pimple on your nose like Rudolph before prom. God doesn't have to do that because your punishment is that you are making yourself miserable, thinking that all the looks and the likes and the compliments could ever fill up this gaping abyss of insecurity down deep at the bottom of your heart. And thus, in answering Habakkuk, God says this, this is chapter 2, verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, for you have devised a shameful thing for your house, for you are sinning against yourself. And any time you sin, you are ultimately sinning against yourself. Which in context is God assuring Habakkuk that while the Babylonians are are vicious, and he is using them to judge Israel, Babylon will not go unpunished either because the punishment for sin is sin. All right, so with that context in place, we'll pick it up now in chapter 3 and see how Habakkuk responds to God's answer. Sid Flieger, our college pastor, is going to give me a little assist this morning and read our text for us. So Habakkuk 3, 1 through 19, it'll be up here on the screen for you as well. Okay, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. He stood and survived the earth. He looked at the startle and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered, and the ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kashan under distress, and the tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers, or was your anger against the rivers, or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare, and your rods of chastisement were sworn. Selah. You covered the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of the water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surges of many waters. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones, and in my place I tremble. 
because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people who arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the field produce no food, though the flock would be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. And he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places for the choir director of my stringed instruments. Amen. Thanks, Sid. So uh, a few weeks ago, I had a, I had a disagreement with a staffer. Anybody want to guess who it was? Yeah, it was Nick. Because, of course, it was Nick. Nick's a very grumpy, disagreeable fellow, very hard to get along with, all of which I can say because everybody knows Nick is the funnest and most beloved staff member there is. So anyways, we, we have this disagreement about a personnel decision, and so Nick does the right thing. Instead of letting it fester, he, he comes in, and he talks to me about it, and so, you know, I, I fire him, right? <laughs> no, I didn't fire him. Um, we talk it out, you know, and he tells me where he's coming from, and I tell him where I'm coming from, uh, and we did not walk away from that meeting in full agreement. Because it is not in the nature of humans to always agree about everything. It's just not going to happen. And yet, while we did not walk away in full agreement, there was no need for an apology because there can be deep and healthy acceptance without agreement or without needing an apology. Make sense to you? You you can agree to walk away on something, uh, to accept something without fully agreeing on it. And we see something similar here in this final chapter of Habakkuk. Because notice, Habakkuk never apologizes for disagreeing with God. Not once. Habakkuk never comes around and says, you know what, God? I, I Actually, now that I think about it, the Babylonians really aren't that bad. You know, what's a little genocide here and there? I will sing of the goodness of God. No, Habakkuk never does that. He never agrees with God's plan, and he never apologizes for it, never gets to a place of apology. And yet, while it's clear that Habakkuk never fully agrees with God's plan, and he never apologizes to God for failing to agree with God's plan. What we do sense in Habakkuk's final response here in chapter 3 is that he's able to get to a place of acceptance. It's a very important word, acceptance. And acceptance is a funny thing, isn't it? Right? Like anybody here today, you have this feeling that there are a few things in your life that need some accepting. Maybe it's something about, about you, about your personality, about your past. Maybe it's something about somebody who's close to you, friend, spouse, parent, quite often a boss. Or maybe it's something about your, your situation that you need to learn how to accept. Um, whatever it is, we all have things in our lives that we know need accepting, and yet this is why, so let's say, a Reinhold Niebuhr's famous serenity prayer is such a powerful source of comfort for so many people. You've probably heard this prayer before. You might not have known it, though. He says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Isn't that good? It's a prayer you can borrow right there. And so we want and need to get to a place of deep and healthy acceptance. And so why is it so hard for us to get there? Why is it so hard for us to find the acceptance that we want and that we know we need? Well, one of the primary reasons why we struggle to find the acceptance that we want and need is that acceptance is not a single decision we make, but rather acceptance is a very long road that we have to walk. Okay, acceptance, it's not a single decision that you get to make once and then you're done with it. Rather, acceptance is a very, very long road that we have to walk. In the first week of the series, I mentioned that a lot of us really struggle balancing this tension 
between uh, resignation or denial on one hand and then entitlement on the other hand. So that we're constantly gravitating toward these extremes because when it hits the fan, and it always hits the fan, and the Babylonians are coming, some of us are very tempted to pretend like it's all good because we want to be good Christians who trust God no matter what. But when you pretend like it's all good, when it quite obviously is not all good, all you do is cultivate a phony faith. All right? When you pretend like it's all good when it's not, all you do is cultivate a phony faith. I was talking to a friend recently. He told me that he'd been through just a very difficult couple of years. Because of this, he had a lot of anger stored up in his heart. He said, man, the, the other day, you know, I was, I was driving past H-E-B in Belton. Beautiful day. Sun down, windows down, my son in the back. And he's driving past. For some reason, this pedestrian starts just yelling at him. And to be more specific, starts yelling racial slurs at him. You know the one. And he said, man... I, I, my mind was blown. This is 2021, Belton, Texas, right over here. And I don't know what to do when things like that happen. I don't know what to do with all the anger I feel. And I said, man, I am generally against running over pedestrians. But, I mean, is he still there? Hey, we could go back. And No, I'm kidding. I think I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, what I told him was, man, I, I don't, I've never dealt with anything like that. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to tell you to do with that anger. But I know what you can't do with it, and that's pretend like it's not there. Because when you try to pretend like it's all good when it's not, again, you do not cultivate faith. You just cultivate phony faith. Then on the flip side, when it hits the fan, splat, and the Babylonians are coming, some of us are tempted to pretend like it's all good, but then a lot of us are tempted to do the exact opposite, and we like to pretend like it's all bad. You ever been around people like this? You ever been a person like this? The catastrophizers? Right? And the very technical theological term that the Bible gives to people who are always complaining about how terrible everything is, you know, always saying the sky is falling, is a grumbler. Isn't that a good word? A grumbler. And the problem with grumblers is that they're entitled, that they think God owes them something. And this is a very big problem. Because while God has freely chosen to give us all things in Christ, God never owes anybody anything. In fact, we should probably take this a step further. God is not capable of owing anybody anything. That's what makes God. God doesn't matter if you live a perfect life. God still doesn't owe you anything. And when we survey the modern American Christian landscape, what I think we see, or at least what Austin sees, are a lot of wannabe good Christians who are mostly phonies. You find them on Instagram. And then a lot of wannabe, profound, contrarian Christians who are just grumblers. You find them on Twitter mostly. And this is why we need prophets like Habakkuk who show us how to thread this middle ground between, you know, uh, phony faith and entitled grumbling, who show us that the only healthy way forward is humble protest, not phony faith or entitled grumbling. In fact, we might say that we have to humbly protest to God because otherwise we become phonies or we become grumblers. Those are really the only three options. And so um, Habakkuk protests God's plan, and he never fully agrees with it, and he never apologizes for failing to agree with it. But what he does do is find a way to accept God's plan because Habakkuk accepts God. So now let's peek a little deeper into the nature of Habakkuk's acceptance here. So what we find in verses 3 through 15 is essentially an ancient battle hymn celebrating God's victory over the forces of evil and justice. Uh, they're spread throughout the Old Testament. You've read them before even if you didn't know it. You know, God, God thunders forth from the tops of the mountains. 
God's voice thunders forth and it makes the mountains quake. God's justice strikes like lightning. Even the sun and moon and stars stand still as they watch this terrifying display of God's judgment and justice as he marches victoriously across the earth. But what Habakkuk has done that's really very interesting is he takes this ancient battle hymn and he, he goes apocalyptic with it. Right, what does that mean, going, going apocalyptic? Well, in biblical terminology, going apocalyptic does not refer to, uh, you know, doomsday prepping for the impending zombie apocalypse, okay? This is not going apocalyptic. Rather, going apocalyptic refers to this very distinct period in Israel's history where we see the emergence of something that scholars call the apocalyptic consciousness. The apocalyptic consciousness. I know that sounds very smart, but it's very simple. For most of Old Testament history, people's outlooks and their expectations were very, very imminent, meaning they expected God to act right here, right now. Okay, God, we need you to do something. You better do it right here, and you better do it right now. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because for most of Old Testament history, there's not what? There's not a very developed notion of the afterlife or of some different world or heaven and hell. And so right here, right now was like all there was. If God didn't act right here, right now, then where else was God going to act? But during the period of Israel's great prophets, right back, it kind of falls under that category, we start to see the emergence of more apocalyptic ways of thinking, by which we mean people's outlooks and their expectations are no longer just right here, right now, but they are deepened and stretched out into the future. And it's this shift in perspective from right here, right now. God's got to work right here, right now. To, well, you know what? Maybe God's going to work like everywhere, but kind of in the future that we call the shift to more apocalyptic ways of thinking. What's particularly interesting is that we see Habakkuk make this enormous shift in the context of his actual book. Because do you remember how imminent, how right here, right now, all of Habakkuk's thought processes and demands are in the first chapter? I've got to go back and remind you of some of them. Uh, Habakkuk 1 verse 5, God says what? Behold, I am doing something when? In your days. Right here, right now. This is what's going down. I am raising up the Chaldeans to judge you. And Habakkuk is like, God, this is a very bad plan. You need to stop this right here, right now. Don't bring the Babylonians. We do not like this plan. You better do something right now. But now listen to the way Habakkuk starts off his prayer in chapter 3. Okay, this is 3 verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. Oh, Lord, revive your work. In the midst of what? In the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath, remember mercy. And so whereas Habakkuk starts out expecting and demanding immediate action from God. God, you better do something now. You better do something today. He's no longer talking in terms of days. What's he talking in terms of now? Years. God, in the midst of the years, make it known. Listen to verse 16 again. Such a humble verse. It says, I heard and my inward parts trembled at the sound. My lips quivered, decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. You know, and this is probably not a verse you want hanging up on your shiplap wall in the old living room. I heard and my inward parts trembled. Maybe your bathroom, probably not living room. That's a bad joke. Um, it's a tough verse. It's a very tough verse, but here's the deal, okay? Somebody's got to tell you this at some point in your life, and so it looks like it's going to be me today. But y'all, your life is going to be hard. So hard. It doesn't matter if you live the easiest life that has ever been lived. Your life is going to be hard because people are going to hurt you, and you're going to hurt people. 
and you will fail, and you will suffer, and you will die. Merry Christmas. (laughs) And as much as we may all wish that it were otherwise, and God knows I wish it were otherwise, Jesus is apparently not riding in on his white steed on a daily basis to fix all this for you. It's not happening. And I know how hard this can be to hear because I know how exhausted so many of us are. And as I've talked to people over the last couple of years, that's the thing that's come up the most because we're, we're confused and we're angry, but mostly I think we're just exhausted. Anybody else exhausted? Do I sound exhausted? Yeah, I'm exhausted. I was talking to a friend recently. She just had a little baby, and he finally started sleeping through the night. She said, it is amazing how much easier parenting is when you're not exhausted. Can I get an amen? I remember when Allison had our first child, you know, and he's, he's, not, he's not sleeping at all. That's not what babies do. Obviously, she's very tired, so I did what I do best, and I made it about myself. I said, hey, babe, I, I notice we're not really connecting right now. Like, are, are things okay? Are you okay? She was like, yeah, I'm just really tired. And I was like, yeah, but should we, like, maybe do some counseling or something? Like, I feel like maybe she goes, I don't want to go to therapy. I need a nap, Austin. It is not about you. I don't need to go to therapy with you. I just need a nap right? Exhaustion, that's all it is. It's not about you. And so I know that so many of us are so exhausted right now, right? We're exhausted by seemingly never-ending pandemics. I mean, y'all, what year is this? Are we 15 years in? I lost count a long time ago. We're running out of letters for the variants. I don't even know. 40 years in, 50 years in. We're exhausted. We're exhausted by the relentless torrent of bad or stupid news. There's only two categories of news coming anymore, bad and stupid pinging us all day from these screens that we're exhausted by and we hate but we love so much too and we can't let go of them we're exhausted by the stubbornness and hard-headedness of people around us but mostly you know what i think we're exhausted by mostly i think we're exhausted by ourselves and our inability to get it together i exhaust myself And so as I just mentioned, the bad news is that Jesus is not riding in on the old white steed to fix all this for us because as I tried to mention every single advent, God is not a fixer. Okay, God's not a fixer. As much as we may wish it were so, God steadfastly chooses not to snap those divine fingers and make everything better for us. I was talking to my oldest son recently about his struggle to get along with his younger brother. I said, well, man, maybe we pray. Ask Jesus for some help. He said, okay, let's do that. So we prayed. Dear God, help my knucklehead boys, get along, please, for the love of God. I know you parted the Red Sea. This may be too much to ask, though. Amen. We finish with this prayer, and Wyatt, he kind of opens up his eyes, and he looks pensively around, and he shakes his head, and he goes, I don't think it's working. <laughs> hmm. And so God is not a fixer. God is not a fixer. But what God is is a healer. I like that word. God's a healer. And I think that's the right word because I think heal really captures the slow but very comprehensive way that God works in our lives, the way God works in our world. Because God doesn't take shortcuts and God doesn't use duct tape. Nope, God has given us the full bone-deep treatment. That's the only way. And that means we must be people who learn how to wait well. In fact, y'all, that's really what Advent comes down to making sure that we are people who know how to wait well, people who are willing to walk that very long road to acceptance. 
because we know that God walks with us, because we know that God knows what it's like to be a human. God knows what it's like to be a human. I want to close with Habakkuk's closing words. Habakkuk 3, 16 through 19. It says, though the fig tree does not blossom, no fruits on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no flock, though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I'm going to rejoice in the Lord and I will exult in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength and he makes my feet like the feet of a deer and he makes me tread upon the heights. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not deserve to be here. That is very hard to remember. Every breath in, every breath out is grace. We do not want to be entitled grumblers. We come before you with open hands. It's the only proper way to come before our maker. But I do pray on behalf of so many of my brothers and sisters who this morning are just exhausted. It has been an exhausting couple of years. It's always exhausting to be a human, but particularly so here lately. We're exhausted by others and we're exhausted by fighting and we're exhausted by these situations that are just out of our control where there seems to be no end in sight but mostly God I think we're exhausted by ourselves and so I pray that today and in this full advent season that you would you would lift us up that you would remind us that the acceptance we seek is it is coming but it's not coming today It's a long road we have to walk, but it's a road we are willing to walk and do so joyfully because you walk with us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.